This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure, again, of welcoming Dr. Uh, Katie Kernett, uh, who is in the section of Gynecologic Oncology in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Um, she is the author of a recently published article a really great article um, that is titled Updates and New Options in Advanced Epithelial Ovarian Cancer Treatment. So, uh, Katie, welcome, and thank you once again for uh, doing the podcast with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, um, Katie, uh, as I mentioned, I, uh, I was uh, speaking with you prior to the podcast and then talking about how uh, comprehensive uh, this is, and I really enjoyed it, um, and so certainly thank you for putting this together. <clears throat> so I wanted to start by um, discussing updates on, on strategies for early detection of ovarian cancer. Have there been any uh, major progress made so far? Yeah, so um, although we still don't have any widely successful screening algorithms, I do think we've made progress in that there have been some large screening studies that have been successfully completed, such as the UKC tox and PLCO, understanding which studies are unsuccessful um, can help us ensure that we are efficiently optimizing healthcare spending and better tailoring risk-benefit discussions with patients. Additionally, data from these large studies really help us to better define what our goals and ideal study endpoints are, which can make new algorithms easier to test in the future. Great. Um, and, and I wanted to then jump right into the, um, the question of obviously often discussing with our patients as they present to us as a new patient or a consult in a clinic, uh, primary management of ovarian cancer. Um, how should we go about the discussion on the role of primary surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy today in 2021? Where are we with that discussion and how, how do you go about with, with your patients? Yeah, um, this is still a really difficult question to answer, and I think there are still some nuance required to interpreting the data that are currently available. Um, the older studies have been criticized for their shorter overall survival outcomes and the concern about the radicality of the surgeries performed. Um, but more recently, the Scorpion trial, which was published in IJGC in 2020, was more convincing in my mind that patients with a large volume of disease do seem to have similar outcomes for primary debulking versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy and have fewer perioperative complications with neoadjuvant. Um, however, this study did not look at patients with a lower volume of disease, largely because the algorithm would have triaged them to a primary debulking regardless. And therefore, I don't think that we know or that we have strong enough data to recommend neoadjuvant therapy for everyone, for those patients with advanced stage, but lower disease burden. Um, and thus, I still favor primary debulking when an optimal and ideally complete gross resection is considered to be possible at the beginning. Yeah. And then that brings me, uh, uh, recently we did a, a podcast with uh, Professor Ignaz Vergoat uh, as one of the legends in, in gynecologic oncology podcasts. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there, there was something interesting in that conversation. Uh, you know, obviously there is an increasing use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We've seen that trend here in the United States. Um, and in that podcast, when asking uh, Professor Vergoat about, you know, the, the future management of, of ovarian cancer, uh, one of the things that he alluded to, which was really very interesting, even though obviously he's known for being an incredibly skilled surgeon and, and one that uh, certainly favors surgery uh, for, for select patients with advanced ovarian cancer, but he said um, 
in the future, I don't really see potentially surgery even being an option for patients with advanced ovarian cancer. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yes, he really, he really is a legend. Um, I think this is a fascinating hypothesis. Um, and, and I think we all have to acknowledge the changing discussion around chemotherapy and surgery in general in the last five, 10 longer years. Um, I think with the treatments that we currently have available, available, um, I do still think ovarian cancer is, is going to be surgically managed, um, at least in part for the foreseeable future. Um, and I, I don't know that I'm totally convinced that surgery will ever be completely eliminated, but I think that will depend on which new therapies we see and how we're able to, um, better triage patients at the beginning and kind of predict their responses to both chemo and surgery. Um, so I guess we will see. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so then now uh, I wanted to uh, jump into some some uh, kind of specifics with regards to the management of patients with advanced ovarian cancer. And, you know, certainly as we see patients in consultations and, uh, um, you know, l- l- we discuss the the, the, the the surgical management. The issue of lymphadenectomy and advanced ovarian cancer, there, there are many who still are performing a full lymphadenectomy for advanced ovarian cancer, even when the lymph nodes appear normal. Um, should this practice now, with the evidence that we have, be considered somewhat inappropriate? Uh, what's the data for um, lymphadenectomy and advanced ovarian cancer? Yeah, I think this is something that's really changed recently. Um, I really do think the data from the LION trial that um, were published looking at this question were quite compelling. Um, I think it was a good study, and in my opinion, they fairly definitively demonstrated that there was no additional benefit from systematic lymphadenectomy, and there was an increased risk of serious complications. Um, So I have certainly changed my practice to eliminate routine lymphadenectomy in advanced ovarian cancer cases in favor of removing only lymph nodes that are grossly abnormal appearing, although, you know, I think that there may be nuances to that, and I'm sure that other people uh, may be awaiting further data. Yeah. Um, Now, jumping on to some of the questions that are sent in by one of our fellows from the journal, Um, this one from Eric Estrada in Guatemala, Uh, he says, uh, multiple scoring systems have been proposed to define the most appropriate patients for primary debulking. Certainly laparoscopy as an assessment, um, the, the peritoneal carcinomatosis index. What would be your recommendations for low resource settings in evaluating who is the ideal candidate for surgery? This is such a great question. Um, and I think it actually even extends beyond just low resource settings. Um, there are certainly practice models in the U.S. that make um, some of the currently proposed algorithms less practical. I think it needs to be guided by what resources are available at each specific location. Um, in some settings, for example, it may be easier to get operative time very quickly for a quick procedure like a diagnostic laparoscopy, but maybe more difficult to get a CT scan with contrast and vice versa. I think um, this would actually be a really great study question, um, see if we couldn't define algorithms and locations with lower or even just different resources and see what might be more feasible while still maintaining high quality care for advanced ovarian cancer patients. Yeah. And, and um, another question, actually, this one's from Spain, uh, now Natalia Rodriguez. Um, she wants to address uh, and hear your opinion about intraperitoneal chemotherapy. And this is standard intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Um, and she says, Intraperitoneal chemotherapy has it come and gone. Is there any patient today that might benefit from intraperitoneal therapy? 
Uh, yeah, this is also a really great question, and I don't think this has a satisfying answer either. Um, those initial IP studies were practice changing, um, but in the past 10 years or so with the therapies that are currently available, the benefit has not been seen with our most recent RCTs. Um, I know at our tumor boards, we always discuss IP chemo as an option for patients who are optimally developed primarily and whose functional status is great, um, but admittedly, I can't recall the last patient we actually treated with IP largely because of these other therapies, such as newer maintenance therapies that are now available and weren't used at the time of GOG 172 and has sort of changed all of our algorithms. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, and I think that's very much reflects our, our practice here at Anderson as well. Um, now, moving forward to another <laughs> somewhat controversial <laughs> topic, um, HIPEC. Um, obviously, uh. it's a frequently discussed topic these days. Um, I did a recent podcast with uh, Oliver uh, Zivanovic from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Obviously, that was also very popular. Um, is there a role today for HIPEC in the upfront management of advanced ovarian cancer? Uh, yes, this is definitely a controversial topic. Um, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that HIPEC for ovarian cancer is still, you know, fairly new. Um, I really don't think that right now the data for HIPEC at primary debulking are as robust, um, and thus we are certainly not routinely offering HIPEC during primary debulking procedures. That said, I think that um, this is a really interesting question, and I don't think that we have really closed the book on this. Um, and I would love to see a phase three RCT evaluating the role of HIPEC during primary debulking surgeries. Um, if such a protocol were to open, um, I would absolutely consider enrolling a patient on it. Yeah. And then just to clarify for our audience, uh, at your center, at the University of Sorry, Chicago. Sorry, at, at our center, yep, at our yeah, center. Yeah, and, and you're not using HIPEC in the upfront setting, correct? We are not using a HIPEC in the upfront setting, no. Great. So then that leads me then to the next question. Um, what about for interval surgery? What data is there and uh, are you using it in your center? Yeah. So um, in my opinion, the data for HIPEC at the time of an interval debulking procedure are um, are stronger. Um, the most widely referenced study here is the Van Gerl study from 2018. Um, and this did show an improvement in both recurrence-free and overall survival when HIPEC was used at the time of an interval surgery. Um, however, the study really was criticized um, by some for its open-label design, which could have led to differences in surgical effort, choices, you know, their comparator arm, um, and the narrow enrollment criteria which, you know, really didn't apply to many ovarian cancer patients that we see. Um, additionally, the logistical considerations and cost of HIPAC are also not insignificant. Um, and so I think we really need to better define which patients are most likely to benefit, as well as confirming what the actual degree of benefit is. Currently, in my group at the University of Chicago, we do offer HIPEC at interval to bulking procedures for select patients, largely because we do acknowledge the overall um, poor prognosis that, that these patients who have higher disease burdens to start and therefore getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, but I would certainly be interested in another phase three trial that addresses some of these criticisms um, in order to better evaluate the treatment on a larger scale. Great. Thank you, uh, Katie. And now um, another uh, potential topic of uh, controversy and discussion with regards to the chemotherapy management of patients undergoing uh, primary surgery. Um, should we be adding today in 2021 um, map to the standard carboplatinum and paclitaxel? Uh, this is certainly a widely debated topic, um, and I know that there are a lot of different practice patterns out there as there are data to support both sides, um, you know, in one way or another. 
For stage three patients with optimal tumor debulkings, my impression of the data suggests a PFS, not an OS benefit. Um, and other studies sort of seem to show that this benefit is also present if um, bevacizumab is used as a later line of therapy rather than in the upfront setting. Um, so I tend to not use bevacizumab in that specific setting, especially because PARP inhibitor maintenance therapy is logistically easier for, um, for patients um, in that they do not have to come in for an infusion center. Um, and many patients after primary therapy is completed, this could be the only time that they are feeling well and um, either off treatment or at least not coming in for the remainder of their treatment course. So I think um, quality of life optimizing is important for me. Um, but uh, for patients with suboptimal debulking procedures or stage four disease, I do think the benefit of bevacizumab is greater. And, you know, in general, I do tend to recommend bevacizumab for those patients. Very well. Now, this, this next question is uh, from Sarah Nasser. She's in uh, Germany. Um, she wants to know about the elderly patients. She asks, uh, after uh, GOG 273 and uh, the EWOC1 trial, um, what is your treatment of choice for frail elderly patients in the primary setting? Yeah, I think the bottom line from those studies were that both seem to suggest that doublet therapy is tolerated by many elderly patients, um, and I therefore do tend to still prefer the every three weekly dose of both carboplatin and paclitaxel. Um, however, for patients who are particularly frail, sometimes I'll at least start with the weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel regimens. I do think those EWOC1 data were fairly compelling that single-agent carboplatin did not have as high of efficacy, um, so I do tend to avoid starting with single-agent therapy as a general rule, barring some unique circumstances. Very well. Now, um, obviously, I was going to ask about PARP inhibitors. So mm. let's discuss the use of PARPs. Um, I, and certainly, I think that there are four groups of patients that you describe when considering um, DNA repair. Um, can you describe just for our audience what these four groups uh, are? Yes, of course. So um, the four groups are, one, patients with a germline BRCA or other mutation associated with homologous recombination deficiency, or HRD. Two would be patients with a somatic HRD mutation. Three would be patients with a tumor HRD um, finding, but no somatic mutation. And four would be patients whose tumors are homologous or combination proficient. Right. So with that, um, let's get a little bit into the uh, the, the key trials. And, and I think that you, your, your table in your article is really fantastic. And I recommend everyone to actually uh, take a look at that as well. Um, the first one, let's discuss the SOLO1 trial. Uh, what was that trial and, and what were the results? Yeah, so SOLO1 was a, um, a big phase three that included patients with advanced stage, high-grade serous or endometrioid ovarian cancer who had BRCA mutations, either germline or somatic. They randomized patients to maintenance elaborate therapy after a partial or complete response to um, primary chemo, and they found a significant improvement in PFS for those patients who were treated with elaborate maintenance um, after chemotherapy was completed. At the time of publication, the median PFS had not yet been reached for the elaborate group. So at STO this year, the authors actually provided an update on that PFS data, which showed that the significant improvement in PFS seemed to persist for a longer term, and that median PFS for the elaborate group was actually 56 months compared to only 14 months in the placebo group. And based on these data, the US FDA did approve elaborate as frontline maintenance therapy for this group of patients. Great, and then the next trial, the, the Prima. Um, tell us about that one and what did it evaluate and what did it show? 
Yeah. So Prima also evaluated patients with advanced high-grade serous or endometrioid ovarian cancer who had a partial or complete response to their primary chemo. However, there was no requirement for a BRCA mutation here, and the study um, required that patients have somewhat higher risk disease, a little bit higher risk, um, with either stage 4 disease or have stage 3 disease with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, residual disease after surgery, or be inoperable. They randomized patients to either neuroparib or placebo maintenance after chemo, um, and they found that neuroparib maintenance was associated with a longer PFS kind of overall um, at about 14 months versus 8 months with placebo. However, for the subgroups of patients with HRD, the benefit was greater, um, and in one of those groups, they showed a PFS of about 22 months versus 10 months. So based on these data, the U.S. FDA did approve neuroparib as frontline maintenance therapy for this broader group of ovarian cancer patients. Great. So then this takes us to Paola. Uh, what was the relevance of that trial, and um, what did it contribute to our management? Yeah, so this trial was a little different um, in that this trial was evaluating advanced ovarian cancer patients who had received bevacizumab as part of primary treatment. Here they found that although the overall cohort did have an improvement in PFS when Elapra was added, um, the benefits seemed to be limited to those patients whose tumors had HRD, either with the Myriad by Choice HRD assay or with the somatic BRCA mutation. Um, but this did also lead to a U.S. FDA approval for the combination in um, in one of these subsets of ovarian cancer patients. Yeah. And then and as a follow-up to that, um, Cecilia Darin from uh, Argentina, um, she asked, in your practice, you mentioned you you. Uh, reserve frontline bevacizumab in patients with higher risk of disease progression. After Paola, would you combine bevacizumab and olaparib in patients with lower risk? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, since the study didn't directly compare the combination arm versus elaborate alone as maintenance in patients with HRD, I don't know how much additional benefit is gained from um, the bevacizumab itself. Um, and we do know that there are some additional risks with bevacizumab. Um, so for patients with HRD tumors, I still favor PARP inhibitors alone as maintenance. I think the population I'm most likely to use the payola combination in is um, for those patients who are already at high risk of progression like we talked about um, and thus are already receiving bevacizumab and then are subsequently found to have an HRD tumor, then I would consider adding a laparab onto their maintenance therapy rather than stopping the bevacizumab altogether. Excellent. And um, one additional key trial, I was wondering if you can just give us the details of that, the Vilia trial. Mm -hmm. So um, Vilia was also a little different, um, and this was the only trial that evaluated um, the, uh, you know, of these trials that evaluated the use of the PARP inhibitor Viliparib in combination with cytotoxic chemotherapy and then continued it as maintenance. Um, the paper that was already published from this trial that was looking at their primary outcome found that patients who received Viliparib throughout their chemo and then continued as maintenance had longer PFS than those who had placebo throughout. Um, so they compared that PARP inhibitor throughout versus placebo throughout. And as seen with the other trials, the benefit did seem to be the greatest for those patients with a germline um, BRCA mutation or patients with tumors who had HRD. Um, results from the final arm of this trial, those patients who had Viliparib with the chemotherapy but then had placebo maintenance um, are not yet reported as far as I know. Um, and this arm was not part of the primary objective. So I think there's still a little bit more to hear from them. Great. So then now um, let's turn to Recurrent disease. Um, Cecilia Danin, uh, again from Argentina, she asked, should we or should we not offer surgery to patients with recurrent ovarian cancer? Are there any patients at all who might benefit? Yeah, another good question. Um, 
Although the recent trials um, have been mixed, I do think there may be a role for secondary debulking procedures for a select group of patients. Um, since we published this review article, an additional phase three trial out of China evaluating secondary debulking for platinum-sensitive recurrence was recently published in Lancet Oncology. Um, this study also showed an improvement in PFS with OS data not yet mature. So all these studies, I think, though, really highlight the importance of patient selection um, and multiple careful kind of algorithms have been proposed. In general, patients for whom a complete gross resection is achieved seem to drive the biggest benefit. Um, so I think secondary debulking procedures may be possible, but really should be reserved for a very carefully selected subset of patients. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, it's the, it's the patients in whom you really feel that it's going to be an optimal R0 side of reduction. Yep. Um, yep. So then now, um, a question with regards to treatment uh, as it pertains to following surgery um, or, or even in, in, without the setting of surgery, the role of the combination okay. of PARP inhibitors and bevacizumab in the recurrent setting. Yeah, so the combination of PARP inhibition and anti-angiogenic therapy, such as bevacizumab, but there are others, uh, does seem to have some activity. There's some good um, preclinical and some, you know, early phase trials um, evaluating this combination. But I really think probably more data are needed before we move this to a standard option in the recurrent setting. I think it will be important to tease out which subgroups really benefit the most, especially in the recurrent setting, and ensure that the combination therapy is truly better than either single agent or maybe even sequential therapy, given the potential for increased adverse events and this already being a, you know, a he potentially heavily pretreated population. Um, multiple trials are ongoing with multiple agents. So I, I think we should have more robust data in the upcoming years. Thanks. So <clears throat> this other topic, I, I know that uh, frequently comes up in many patients asking, and I'm sure for you the same, is obviously the discussion of immunotherapy. Obviously, many patients are wondering, can I have immunotherapy? Um, what do we have so far? Is this looking promising or is ovarian cancer not the ideal cancer for this approach? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, thus far, um, none of the completed studies have shown an overwhelming benefit for single-agent checkpoint inhibitor therapy in the recurrent setting, or even some of the studies looking at checkpoint inhibitor therapy combined with standard chemo in the primary setting. Um, however, response rates in the recurrent setting were better when the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab was given, and I think many of us are still hopeful that if the current immunotherapy agents are combined either with other um, immunotherapy agents or targeted therapies, maybe these new combinations might see improved efficacy for ovarian cancer patients. Um, many trials are ongoing, so I do think this debate will remain alive uh, a while longer. Great. Um, this next question comes from Arthur Su from um, uh, Taiwan. Um, he's wondering about the patients where there's just a rise in CA125 during your surveillance. Uh, he asked if patients had a CA125 monitoring after primary treatment, um, what treatment, if any, would you give for just a CA125 elevation alone without image-documented disease during surveillance? This is always such a difficult situation in the clinic. Um, without imaging findings to suggest recurrence, though, I still am not treating isolated CA125 elevations based on those data showing that 
earlier treatment really did not lead to, you know, longer overall survival. Um, however, depending on my discussions with the patient, I might be more inclined to do repeat imaging sooner, for example, as I do think um, there may be a role for secondary debulking for some patients with these platinum-sensitive recurrence like we discussed, and thus finding these recurrences sooner could theoretically be beneficial. Now, this next question comes to us from Australia, Emma Allenson. Um, she asks, should genetic testing be performed in every patient today with ovarian cancer? Why? And what strategy should be used with regards to somatic versus germline testing? Yeah, this is really important. Um, I think that based on recommendations from multiple organizations at this point, I do strongly believe that genetic testing should be performed on every patient with epithelial ovarian cancer, you know, with some, some exceptions like mucinous histology, perhaps. Um, I do acknowledge, though, that there are multiple proposed algorithms with different approaches to this testing, um, in addition to the actual differences in the genes that are tested, new panels, et cetera. Um, so I tend to do germline testing first, um, but that's in part due to logistical reasons where I am and then move on to somatic testing if germline testing is negative. I know others will go in the reverse order or will do both concurrently, which I think is also acceptable. With all the new PARP inhibitor indications, though, I do think that many patients will end up having both germline and somatic testing at some point when all is said and done. Excellent. So then now, Katie, as we come to the conclusion of our podcast, I wanted to ask you this one last question. As you consider the evolution of treatment over the past decade, Um, where do you envision we will be as it pertains to the management of upfront and recurrent ovarian cancer, say, 10 years from now? Oh, this is such a great question. I think it's, you know, these types of questions are why we all do what we do. Um, I hope that we'll see a lot of progress um, for primary ovarian cancer treatment. I hope that we will have better defined algorithms that work in a wide variety of practice settings and help ensure consistent quality of care for the treatment of primary ovarian cancer patients. In the recurrent setting, I hope we will continue to develop ways to identify patients who are most likely to benefit from these newer therapies that we have and, you know, newer ones that we will have in that time um, in order to personalize treatment choices and ideally balance out the cost of cancer care with the likelihood of efficacy as well as side effects. At the end of the day, though, I really hope that we are able to find new screening strategies and approaches to identifying earlier diagnoses of ovarian cancer since I do think prevention and early detection are probably the areas that are most likely to change the bigger picture of ovarian cancer as we move forward. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Katie Kernett uh, from the section of gynecologic oncology at the University of Chicago. I might just also add, we're so extremely proud. Uh, Katie was a fellow here <laughs> at MD Anderson. So we want to thank you for your contribution, obviously, to gynecologic oncology. Really looking forward to our net po next uh, podcast. Uh, I'm sure it will be soon. And thank you always for agreeing to the invitations. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.